Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell. Today I've got another piece of audio from the recent Association of Alternative News Media's conference in Salt Lake City. One of the great things about the annual conference is its free speech luncheon, in which they invite someone who's involved in protecting free speech rights to come in and talk about the work they're doing. This podcast is a presentation by David Green, senior staff attorney and civil rights director with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is out there fighting the good fight in the digital realm. I shouldn't have to explain to journalists why it's important that we are ever vigilant in protecting our free speech rights. These are the waters we swim in. These are the tools we use to report the news and uh, protect our sources. David has a great presentation about the threats that are out there to our industry, uh, to our freedoms. I hope this gives you a better understanding of the dangers that are ahead in this era of mass surveillance. It's usually at this point where I tell you to enjoy the podcast, but it's probably more fitting if I just say, be safe out there. to be here. I was telling folks, um, I've been wanting to come to this conference for years and years. Bruce Brugman was always on my back to come here and said that I would love this conference and I needed to be here and I never actually made it until today. So I'm, I'm really pleased uh, to be here. I'm hoping to leave plenty of time at the end for questions and really happy to talk about any type of uh, current uh, First Amendment issues, especially as they arise in the, in the digital world, or free press issues, because I do international work as well now. But I really want to focus what I'm talking on uh, today is the idea of you know, freedom of the press in the age of mass surveillance. And that's something I actually do a lot of work on myself right now. For those of you who don't know, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, <clears throat> and, and I also have to apologize. My voice is a little hoarse. Last night we had our big 25th anniversary party. We actually turned 25 last week uh, and celebrated last night with a big party, at which, I, which was very loud. I kept on telling people, I'm not going to shout over the noise because I need to... I need my voice tomorrow to talk. But EFF is a civil liberties organization uh, that works to defend uh, digital rights, civil liberties as they rise in the digital world. When EFF started, what we meant by the digital world was actually a much narrower thing than what it is now. Then it really was, you know, we're having, we have this new medium, the Internet, that has really sort of um, – that was created largely organically, although certainly with the support of the U.S. military. But it's, it's kind of a thing where it's sort of it's crossing borders. It's becoming a it's becoming a transnational means of communication. And and how do we preserve? And we understand there's going to be an urge for governments to try and regulate and restrict and feel threatened by speech on the Internet. And that was really how EFF started. What we've seen, though, over the 25 years is that the digital world really now you know, encompasses almost everything we do. Um, it's not just the Internet. It's you know, our thermostats and you know, our smoke detectors and our refrigerators and our cars. And um, we, you know, the digital world has really it's, – it's hard to draw now a distinction between the digital world and the non-digital world. And you actually really have to make now efforts to really remove yourself from the digital world if you decided you didn't want to participate in it, even on a limited basis. So that's what we do at EFF. Um, we do a lot of First Amendment work. That's mostly what I do. We also do a lot of Fourth Amendment work. We, we are – at EFF, we have what we call a, a, a three-pronged approach to 
to advancing uh, civil rights in the digital world. One, we have a whole bunch of lawyers, and we do a lot of impact litigation, and that's what I do. We also have activists, and we do a lot of grassroots and grass tops activism, trying to um, engage, engage people who care about these issues to be vocal about them and, and do things. And then we also have technologists who develop tools that help enhance digital rights. And I'll talk about some of those things at the end. But I did want to talk, I did want to focus this talk on what I'm calling free press in the age of mass surveillance. And maybe the first thing to talk about is why is this the age of mass surveillance? I I made that term up. I don't think anybody actually has really deemed it the age of mass surveillance. Uh, But allow me just to do that. Because there's been mass surveillance for a very long time. It's, it's not like it didn't exist before Edward Snowden. But we're certainly learning a lot more about it now, and we certainly have learned a lot about it since at least 2006. So I think we're, we're 10 years into now at least having some knowledge of the extent of the mass surveillance the U.S. government and actually a lot of foreign governments are – are conducting. At first, I should say, what do I mean by mass surveillance? So I talk about mass surveillance. This is the idea when the government just collects information about people's communications in bulk. They just get everything. And I, I'll distinguish that from targeted surveillance, the idea that, you know, I suspect Jean of doing something wrong. So I'm go as I, as law enforcement, suspect that she's doing something wrong, and so I'm just going to go after her information because I think she did something wrong. That's, that's typical law enforcement or national security investigations, but that's not what I'm talking about. This is I'm going to collect everyone's information in this room because maybe I'll find something in there that will, uh, will be of interest to me. And that's what I mean by sort of non-suspicious mass surveillance. Why is it – why might this be the age of mass surveillance? Well, first of all, technology has really made it much more efficient for the government to both collect, to store, and to analyze massive amounts of data. And the storage thing is actually one of the more recent, uh, you know, more recent technological developments. Before, one of the reasons why governments didn't want to collect a lot of information was they didn't have any place to put it. But uh, actually, you know, in this state, in Utah – the NSA has built a very large storage facility that uh, has built a very large storage facility for the purpose of storing this massive amount of communications data. It's collected. A few months ago, we flew a blimp over it. Uh, actually, it wasn't a blimp. It was another kind of airship. So if there was an airship aficionado, they'd call me out on that. It wasn't a blimp, sorry. But it was an airship. We flew an airship over it with a big sign that said uh, mass surveillance below with a big arrow pointing to it. There's great pictures of it on our website. Uh, If I weren't PowerPoint-averse, I probably would have projected one up there for you all. But anyway, but the technological developments, we have this, uh, the governments have a much greater ability to collect the data, to store it, and to analyze it very efficiently. We're no longer the point where if a spy agency wants information about someone, they have to have someone, you know, sit down and listen to a bunch of tapes. They have to have an individual listen to a bunch of tapes or flip through papers. Right now, we can automate a lot of our a lot of the analyses. The other thing is that our data is now a lot more. It's both more concentrated, and it's both more concentrated in places where we actually don't have a lot of control over it. So before you could say, well, most I have control over most of my personal data. You might have been able to say that, but now we actually have you know our our. Our mobile phone provider actually has a ton of information about us because we use our telephones to do all sorts of things. We communicate with our doctors. We make our travel arrangements 
on them. You know, we do banking on them. We do shopping on them. I mean, so we have we our, our information is both more concentrated with people. It's also concentrated with people we actually don't really have that close of a relationship with, and may not even have that much of a relationship of trust with. And we don't really we might even not know what kind of relationship that person has with the government. And so again, these things have really. Uh, and, and you can and you can there's cloud storage. Um, you know, even if you use, you know, a, a service like Google that, as its model, is to actually collect a lot of information across its platforms. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of examples you can think about where there's lots of entities and lots of services that have a ton of information about you. And these are all easy targets for the government, right? Again, it's much more efficient for the government to go to one entity and say, give me all this information and get stuff than have to go to a lot of different places to really collect a lot of information about people. Okay, so that's why I'm, that's why at least I feel pretty confident calling this the age of mass surveillance. Now, I know some of you might be saying, well, this was a problem, right? This was a problem, but we know that on June 4th, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act. I hope everyone knows that it was a big deal. Uh, it, it was a big deal because it's significant. Really, this this legislation, which was hard fought, and if you were, if you were following it, there was a tremendous amount of of drama and backroom dealing and people yelling at each other on C-SPAN. But it, this is it's really significant because it's only the second time ever that. Congress has actually restricted the spying powers of the executive branch. So it was only the second time that's ever happened. The first time was after the Church Commission investigated the COINTELPRO spying and created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, created a court that was a secret court, but a court that was able to actually at least have a stage where the government needed to seek approval to conduct um, surveillance on, in the name of foreign intelligence. So USA Freedom was significant. So it was significant in that we just don't see Congress doing that a lot. But it did not end mass surveillance. It did a few good things, some, some small steps to reform. It's the main goal of the USA Freedom Act was to rein in the call detail records collection program. And this is one of the ones that people had really been talking about because it was, it was the subject of the very first Snowden disclosure, um, one of the very first, very first documents that had been leaked by Edward Snowden to be published, um, and, to be, and it was published by The Guardian in the UK, was this order, the secret order of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that permitted the government to collect the call records of every call made to and from, so through, either way, to or from, Verizon Business Network Services for a 90-day period. And it was obvious from the order this was a renewal of previous orders. So this wasn't a one-time thing. That was one of the very first documents, was the very first document that uh, was made public that was produced by, um, was leaked by Snowden. Now, that program actually had been leaked before. It had been actually leaked as early as 2006 um, when both USA Today and the New York Times reported on the program because of other whistleblowers. But those other whistleblowers didn't have the documents to show that it was happening, and the government denied, denied it. But this gave us a lot more information about the program, and this was actually quite shocking to a lot of people. What the order described and what some of the other documents described was that – 
And we know that Verizon Business Network Services was not the only provider that, for which this permission was granted by the court. It's the only one the government has confirmed, but we know that there are other ones. The government has said that there were other ones. It also has said, but not everyone. It hasn't told us, hasn't acknowledged or admitted um, who was not in part of this program. But what it allowed them to do is say, okay, we want, we want all call records, every call made to and from within your – now, we're, and the government said we're only getting what they called metadata. Metadata is just a fancy word for data. It means data about data. So I just sort of like to call it data. But the government called it <laughs> metadata. And what they said, they said we're not getting – to try to make us all feel good, they were saying we're not getting content. We're not listening to your calls. We don't know what you're saying to the other person. We just know what number you called, when you called them, and for how long you spoke. And we also know who called you, for how, you know, how, for how, when they called you, and for how long we spoke. So we don't know what you said. I think it's, it's obvious to all of us that, that metadata is actually a really rich source of information. So, for example, if the government knows that you called a suicide prevention hotline and talked to them for 15 minutes, and then you called a psychiatric hospital, they actually probably know a lot about you at that point, right? And that's you know, just one example. But that, so that they were collecting data about data. And then when they actually had like a phone number of a suspected terrorist. And again, we also have to remember that the government defines terrorist very broadly. I think there's the, I, there's the common meaning of terrorist that we think we all have in our heads. They also define, there's also this concept of domestic terrorism as well. And, and many, what the government considers to be radical environmental groups, for example, are considered terrorists. Anyway, they have a phone number that they think is the phone number of a bad person. And then they'll say, okay, we're going to now use our analytical tools and identify every phone number that called that person and every person that – and every number. So all the back and forth between that person, that's sort of the first circle of contacts. And then they go two circles beyond that. Then every per- people who called or were called by the first circle and then every – person who was called or received calls to provide the next circle. So they called this three hops. They would go three hops. They would analyze three hops from their target telephone number. So you can imagine for any person, that's a lot of calls. And if you just happen to order a pizza from the same place as a suspected terrorist, your phone records are now going to be captured within this. Not even that, if you ordered a pizza, if you talked to someone who ordered a pizza from the same person, you know, your phone records would be captured. And the fact the government even had a file of, a file of cases they called pizza cases, which was when they had identified that, because what they were trying to find was patterns of calls. Like, you know, we think phone number A is a suspected terrorist, and look, all these people are talking to the same other number that, number A are talking to, so maybe that's a network of terrorists, right? And then they would look and say, oh, wait, they're all ordering pizza. And they actually had a whole file of something that was P- they called pizza cases. That was an official program name. So anyway, that was the call detail records program. Um, we sued about it. And not only did we sue, the ACL, we filed a lawsuit in California, which I'll talk about later. ACLU filed a lawsuit in New York uh, saying that the program was both illegal and unconstitutional. Larry Clayman, the head of Judicial Watch, filed a lawsuit in D.C. Rand Paul then filed a lawsuit in D.C. A pediatric nurse practitioner in Idaho then filed a lawsuit in Idaho. 
Two other lawsuits were filed in Texas about this. Um, what happened with the lawsuits is that first in Larry Clayman's D.C. lawsuit, the judge there actually declared the program unconstitutional, said it violated the Fourth Amendment. It was an illegal search and seizure, and the government appealed that, and that appeal is still pending. There's no decision yet. The ACLU lost. They got an opposite decision in New York. They appealed and then got the, the, the appellate court in New York, the Second Circuit, to actually say, to say, we don't think the program's legal. We just don't think the statute, and I'll talk more about the statute, authorizes this program. And in our lawsuit in California, our judges refused to hear it. He, it's been two years. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of the day we filed it, and he just keeps on taking it off his calendar. So, and I'll talk about that later. Anyway, uh, when we talk about this, what USA Freedom did was it reformed the statute that the government said authorized that program. And this was Section 215, which is um, it's a section of the – Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was then amended several times, but basically allows the government to collect business records, business records that are relevant to an authorized investigation. And it was saying, well, we're collecting all of this phone information because we are bound to find something that's relevant in there, right? Surely if we collect everything, we'll get the relevant stuff along with all the irrelevant stuff. And that was their reasoning. And that was really the reasoning that the Second Circuit rejected. We say you can't read the word relevant that way. What, what the USA Freedom Act was amend Section 215 with the purpose really of, of deauthorizing the call detail records collection program. And to say now the only thing the government can do is it, the only information it can get from – if it wants information from the telephone companies, it has to actually give them a specific selection term. So it has to give them the phone number and say, we want all the calls made to and from this phone number. And that's, that's what it says that they can do. So that's one of the things USA Freedom Act did. So it did change – uh, it did change the call detail records collection program a little bit, although not completely. Just very quickly, what are some of the other things it did that are actually pretty good? One, it, it did reform this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, this secret court. And one of the things it did that's, that's actually really good is that it created the system to have a special advocate in the court. The way this court worked, unlike every other federal court, is that the government would appear – and say, here's the reason why we need the court to give us the permission to get all this information. And there was no opposition. Nobody else was there to tell the judge, hey, we actually think this is a bad idea. The phone companies had the ability to appear if they want. But as far as we know, um, under that program, no phone company actually ever did that. Some companies have said, well, we may have, but we can't tell you, so maybe we'll learn more. And actually, even uh, the instances of any company, even beyond telephone records, going in and challenging, going into this court and arguing is actually quite rare. We know that Yahoo actually did it um, with respect to a different program. But this now actually created an advocate system where there's, there, the court's now going to appoint five people who are going to be available on the court's request – to advocate for the other side. Now, the bad thing is the court – it's still on the court's request, which not something I like, but at least it's a little bit of a better system there. The other thing it did with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was usually its orders are presumptively secret. The court always had the ability to publish them if it wanted to, but usually they, it didn't have to. And now it says we actually think you should publish – most opinions actually had several categories of opinions that, that really should be published except in, sexual, except in exceptional circumstances. And in those circumstances, the court at least has to explain why it can't publish 
the opinion. So those are some good reforms. The other thing it did that's really not relevant to what we're talking about today is that it reformed a different, con- a different kind of surveillance to- tool, this national security letters, which is a type of target surveillance where the FBI could go to a telephone company or an internet service and say, we need all the information about this person and you can't tell anybody that you got this order. And it, what it did was actually reform that sort of gag order process. So anyway, if, you have, if USA Freedom uh, was passed, why do we still care about call, detail, records, mass surveillance? Well, first of all, one of the things the law did do was that it allowed the spying to resume for up to six months. What the security community said was that we need to be able to – we're going to transition to this program whereby we're going to ask the telephone companies for the information instead of you know, targeting information. But we need to actually develop software – we can't make them develop the technological capability to comply with our request, so we need to develop the software, and it's going to take us up to six months, so that's why we need this transitional period. So the spying has actually resumed. Um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court just authorized it uh, a few weeks ago, and that, again, can go up for another six months, so it's still happening now. And then the other thing that it did was that even when they're getting information from – although it stopped bulk collection – it still allows what we call bulky collection, which means it still allows – we go to the telephone company and you say, I want all the calls made to and from number A and then two ops, two hops behind that. So they can still get the hops. They can still get the two circles of calls made to and from that surround that number. So they can still get a lot of stuff. They just don't get – we're not collecting it sort of with no filter at all like they were before. The other thing that's important to know about USA Freedom is that it didn't reform any other program. And there's lots of other mass surveillance programs. What are some really scary ones? My favorite really scary one uh, – I shouldn't say it's not my favorite. It's, it's a horrible program. The most scary one, perhaps – maybe that's a better way of saying it – is the upstream collection program. Upstream collection is not has nothing to do with Section 215. It's actually authorized by a completely different law, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, if you're keeping track of the laws. And that, that, what that law says is that the government is allowed to collect information, uh, communications of, um, for foreign intelligence purposes, uh, of foreign – of non-U.S. persons for foreign intelligence purposes. That's the law says. So they, they, they have this upstream program. What upstream does is that they install a fiber optic splitter in major telecommunications hubs, and they copy the internet as it goes through those hubs. So they get a copy of all internet traffic. So that, that's a lot of stuff, right? That, that's a lot scarier than telephone record. Who even uses their telephone to make calls anymore, right? But internet, right? You know, so that, that's going to include internet phone calls, VoIP. That's going to include all web searching, history, email, all that stuff. There's a separate program where they're collecting text messages, but as far as you know, they're only doing that for overseas text messages. So. Um, anyway, so the upstream program, really, really scary. And, and you can say, well, how does the law allow this? Because the law only allows foreign, you know, allows them to, to collect foreign communications. And they, they, they finesse this in two ways. One is that they say, well, we filter out to make sure that all of our communications, the communications we actually keep, although they don't use that word, they never like to use the word keep, are they're at least one way foreign. There's at least a foreign person, on, a non-U.S. person on one side of, of the transaction. 
right? So that's one of the thing. That's one of the things they say, and that just doesn't work for two reasons. One is that they admit that it's actually really hard to do that, and that they actually they do collect incidentally a lot of information that has nothing to do with non-U.S. people. That's solely solely U.S. communications because it's just because they just do. Uh, the other thing is that the way the internet works, you know, I could send an email to Kevin in the back of the room right now. That email could travel, you know, around the world before it actually gets to him. I mean, the way the internet works is that you find the most efficient route through servers placed around the world. You know, it doesn't just go from here to there. It's not like those old Palm Pilots that used to like beam things to the person. So many, even communications that are completely domestic, actually might travel around the world. You know, to get to their domestic location. So even though the goal of the program was just to collect foreign communications, it was collecting everyone's communications. That's just the way it worked. The way it worked mechanically was they would collect all the stuff and they would immediately filter out for some stuff because that was it was too much to keep. Because if you go by bandwidth, about forty percent of internet bandwidth is movies, is people watching movies, and that's a product of the fact that people watch a lot of movies and also that they just suck up a ton of bandwidth. So they filter out Netflix and all these other and red box and all the other sort of movie things. They also try to filter out email spam because, as you all know, there's a lot of email spam. One of the things we learned from a recent disclosure was that really, if, and I think they have to stop doing this now, but really, if you really wanted to hide something from the NSA, the best thing to do was to hide it within like a Viagra ad. Like, make your email seem like you were trying to sell Viagra uh, because they filtered, the, they didn't keep any of that. If they thought something was a, Vi was a Viagra email, they wouldn't keep it. So now the, now the terrorists can win, right, now that they know that. Anyway, so that, that's the upstream program. That's really scary, right? We actually have known about the upstream program since 2006. The government denied it exists. We didn't know it was called upstream. Uh, we knew because at EFF we had a whistleblower come to us and say, hey, I used to work at AT&T in San Francisco at this facility down the street from you, and I had to install this fiber optic splitter in this secret room, and I was never allowed in the room again. And no one's allowed in the room unless they have NSA clearance. And I asked people who know about these splitters, and they said the only thing they're capable of doing is copying the entire Internet. <laughs> so he came to us. That was in 2006. We filed a lawsuit against AT&T, saying, hey, AT&T, you can't do that. Congress responded. Part of, one of the things it did in this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Act, which if you do the acronym, it's FISA. Uh, one of the things they did was actually grant the telephone companies immunity and say, you ha if, you permit, if you participated in one of these surveillance programs, you can, you can have no liability. So then we had to just, that lawsuit went away, and we filed, in 2008, we filed a new one called Juul versus NSA, which to can say that this program, this upstream, which this program we now know is called upstream, that this must be unconstitutional, this must violate the Fourth Amendment, this is the government searching and seizing your information without a warrant, and you would think we filed in 2008 that that case must be over now, right? And no. We actually are right now preparing our – that case has been up and down the court system many times, but we, are, we recently had our trial court judge rule that he could not decide the case because we could not prove that our AT&T customers, that their stuff actually had been collected. 
And also that even if we could prove it that there's this thing called the state secrets privilege, that the government would have to disclose too much really important information in order to defend the lawsuit, and so he couldn't let the lawsuit go forward. So we actually have now appealed that order up to uh, the Ninth Circuit, and we'll be filing our briefs in two weeks in that case. So. so that's upstream. That's really scary. That's still going on. USA Freedom did nothing to reform that at all. There's been a second lawsuit filed a few months ago. The ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of Wikimedia, because in another document that was part of the Snowden disclosures, Wikimedia was identified as a particular target upstream collection, Wikimedia and several other, and several other uh, sites. So they filed their own lawsuit there. Okay, so that's upstream. What are some other really scary ones? There's a whole bunch of surveillance programs that don't occur on U.S. soil, and and they occur under the authority of the under the president's just general national security authority, um, which you may here be called uh, twelve triple three authority. That term comes from Executive Order twelve three three three, which is the executive order that basically just says part of the president's national security powers are the ability to collect foreign intelligence information. And so these definitely capture stuff about U.S. persons, but it's happening abroad. The problem is that the U.S. actually has great cooperative relationships with other nations' spying entities. And one of the things we have found out that I think much more than we realized was how deep this cooperation is. So the the U.S.'s main spying partners are the Five Eyes nations. That's the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And they share a tremendous amount of intelligence information and spy on each other's citizens for each other all the time. The U.S.'s best partner is probably the GCHQ. That's the the U.K. spying agency. And they were doing a tremendous amount of the Internet traffic in the world actually travels over these undersea cables that arise from the sea. I always imagine sort of like Aphrodite on her shell. Arise from the sea on the shores of, of Great Britain. Well, the GCHQ just tapped into those cables and you know, basically to get access to all information that was traveling over, over those cables, which was essentially all Internet traffic in the world. And uh, that was, this program was called Tempora. You might have heard about it. And then they were making that, that data available to the U.S. government. And, and we can assume the U.S. was doing the same thing for the other agencies as well. So there's a lot of other things going that aren't even really – happening by the U.S. government, but are, um, but the U.S. government is still getting the information. Okay, so are you all scared yet? I told Brad that I would scare you all. Is everyone scared? It gets worse, right? Okay. Because it's not just the NSA and it's not just for purposes of national security. What we've learned is that mass surveillance really is not, is not within the soul. It's not just a skill that the, that the NSA or the FBI has. Other federal agencies have been engaging in mass surveillance too. In fact, with the call detail records program, this, this program was actually, that the NSA and the FBI were doing, was actually modeled on a program that the DEA had been doing since 1991. Since 1991, the DEA would collect in bulk all calls made to and from the U.S. and certain identified countries that were on the DEA's drug trafficking list. And maybe that seems sort of innocuous until you realize that of the, I don't have the exact numbers here, but something like of the 140 nations the U.S. recognizes, 120 of them were on the DEA's drug trafficking list. So the DEA, now it wasn't viewing every country all the time since 1991, but the program was ongoing since 1991, challenge, uh, collecting all calls made to, and fr- made to and from the U.S. and certain identified countries. 
And these at least include, you know, Iran, Colombia, Mexico. I mean, the, 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 there's obvious ones that the DEA has, um, has identified as its major drug trafficking concerns. Um, and then we also know that once the DEA, and the DEA just collected this information under what are called standard administrative subpoenas. Um, so this wasn't even like some secret court process. This was just a standard investigatory tool that they have. We just found out about this all. This has all been disclosed just within the past few months. And what we also know is that this program was then shared widely with other federal agencies. When we found out about this, we decided to sue the DEA. Uh, we sued the DEA on behalf of Human Rights Watch, which uh, many of you may know is an international human rights organization that makes a lot of telephone calls to foreign countries that are on the DEA's uh, you know, uh, drug trafficking list, and including Iran, which is the one that the U.S. government has, has acknowledged, saying, you know, we want our records back. Right? The U.S. government actually stopped this. They say they've suspended this program. They say they're not doing it anymore. Uh, we're pretty sure the reason they said they're doing that is because they realize that they're going to need to defend their terrorism spying programs. They didn't want to have to defend this one that has nothing to do with terrorism. So it's been suspended, but we've said that we want our records back. We don't want you holding on to these. And one of the things the government has told us so far is, well, it would really be impossible for us to figure out where all the information is now. It would, well, the language they use is, it would be too burdensome for us to figure out where all this information is now. So it's been shared widely, and we think they largely have lost track of it. Okay, that's scary mass surveillance. Why should the press and AAN members care about this stuff? And I, what, The point I want you to think about is that mass surveillance is really a significant infringement, not only of Fourth Amendment rights, but of First Amendment rights as well. And this is really some of the work that I've been doing at EFF is really trying to advance the First Amendment arguments about against mass surveillance. So in our case that we filed challenging the call detailed records program, our clients were 22 organizations, uh, advocacy membership organizations that said, if you have all call records, you know who our members are. You know who we talk to. You know who we consult with. Our members don't want the government. We are sensitive organizations. Our lead plaintiff in that case was the First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles. And we did not choose it just for the acronym either. Everyone always says that too. But, um, but, we, but anyway, say so we don't want our members. We, don't want, we have a right to associate with our members in private. Right? That's a right that actually been established by the U.S. Supreme Court back in the 50s when the NAACP was harassed to turn over its membership list in many, many situations. One of the ways they would try and scare the NAACP out of places is that they would say, show us who your members are, and then people would not want to be members of the, of the NAACP, and, and the organizations would fold. So um, we're saying that by collecting call records, you're essentially doing the same thing. So your freedom of association, you can't have these private effective associations if the government knows everyone you call and who calls you. The second thing, perhaps a more obvious one, is that it goes against your freedom of anonymous speech, that you do not have the ability to talk to, to people anonymously. And then perhaps most uh, you know, directly important for news entities is that you know, we go through a lot of work. We do, as lawyers who represent news entities, we do a ton of work, you know, uh, in the courts and, and counseling clients, you're trying to protect confidential sources, right? And usually that comes up when you get a subpoena, you know, uh, as from, from someone's litigation or a grand jury investigation or things like that. But, you know, the government really doesn't – if you're dealing with the federal government, they really don't even need to bother with the subpoenas because they essentially have your records anyway, right? 
you really aren't able to promise – and even if you say I would go to jail for you to your source, right, you really can't even promise confidentiality because the government has your phone records, right? They have your internet records. They have your email records, right? So, our, so it, really, um, it really compromises the ability to protect communications with con- – any, I mean anything but in-person communications with confidential sources um, and, and really any other type of confidential reporting decision. So – and as you could imagine, um, if you would actually explain that to your sources, it would probably chill their, uh, their, their ability or their desire to give you information. So I do want to be able to understand that, um, that it is – I do think this is a First Amendment. I do think this is a free speech issue and not just you know, a, search and, a search and seizure issue. And, and you know, we, we still keep on perhaps Sisyphusianly – I don't even know if that's an adverb. Try to you know, pursue our first Unitarian case, even though the judge really doesn't want to hear the case, because we really think that some judge really, really needs to consider in depth the free speech and freedom of association aspects of mass surveillance. One of the things we know that happened in a completely different case was that the federal, the government admitted that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has never analyzed the First Amendment implications of mass surveillance, actually of any surveillance. So, okay. So that's why we should care. Now, what, um, what should you do then, right? Now that you care, what should you do? Well, let's see. Let's first of all do what can you do to protect your own information? Well, you really can and should adopt internal security measures, and that's primarily um, several levels of encryption. Now, when I say encryption, when I do these talks, people start getting really scared. Um, it's almost as scary as a government surveillance program because it seems very difficult. But you really, you really should be encrypting everything. All your communications uh, should be encrypted. That includes internet as well as telephone and text messaging and things like that. How do you do that? Well, we actually, if you go to the EFF's website, EFF.org, and you look up surveillance self-defense, uh, or just do EFF.org slash SSD, you will pull up our surveillance self-defense guide, where we actually have a ton of, of step-by-step instructions, not j- some of them directed specifically for journalists, some of them for non-journalists, about how to really maximize your protection against surveillance. But some of the really easy things to do are encrypting your emails, installing PGP encryption, which as far as we know, the documents seem to indicate the government has not been able to break. You, there are programs that will allow you to encrypt uh, telephone calls and text messages. There is a company called Whisper Systems um, that makes open source programs. Uh, I have an Android, so on my phone they're called Redphone and Text Secure. Redphone is encrypted telephone conversations. Text Secure are encrypted text messages. It's called Signal if you have an iPhone. It does not exist on a Microsoft operating system because that system is inherently vulnerable. Anyway, but there are things that you can do. There's, there's, there's things that you, people might – right now you might be taking out your phones and downloading a Signal app. Well, I know. But there's things that you can do. And then the other thing is that when you are using vendors, third-party vendors, you really want to make sure that they have really good security practices as well. And that might mean reading their really, really difficult-to-read privacy policies – and also just having conversations with them about what their privacy practices are. The same way that you have conversations with your sources before you promise them confidentiality, right, about what 
at least what, you sh- what your lawyer should be advising you, conversations you should be having, right? Telling someone what the limits of your ability to promise confidentiality are and when a court actually might compel you to provide testimony. And that, you know, this is a situation you might not be willing to go to jail for. You might want to have similar conversations with any third party that actually has, that you use, whether a cloud service or a communications platform that you use to, find, to make sure that they're someone who are actually going to be steadfast to, in protecting your privacy as you are for your sources, because your word to your sources is only going to be as good as their word to you. So those are things you can do. Um, the other thing, what, uh, just one specific thing I like to tell people when they are talking to their providers a legal phenomenon that I really, really dislike right now is this idea of doe lawsuits. This is the idea you sue somebody, you don't know who they are. You know, someone did something wrong to you, so um, but you don't know who it is, so you sue them and you name them as John Doe or Mary Doe, or we have a whole bunch of cute little anonymous names we use in the law. But what, what, what started happening with these doe lawsuits? So when you're, when you're suing someone who's a doe, who's an unknown person, there's no one in court arguing against you, right? It's just you and the judge. But people, some judges who aren't thinking as clearly about this as perhaps they should be, are actually giving or issuing orders saying, you know, okay, you've sued Doe. We think Doe needs to take down, he wrote this article, it's defamatory, right? Or, or Doe stole our trade secrets and published them on your, in a comment on your news site or something like that. And, and the judge says, okay, I'm going to issue an order that says, you know, take down that content. And then they start showing these orders around to, like, web hosts and things like that. And the web host's like, oh, it says court order. I'm really scared, right? Well, I, I always think it's a good thing to have a conversation about Doe lawsuits because if, if someone's not named on those things, they're not enforceable. The way it's supposed to work is that they don't, they're not enforceable until you identify the Doe. But, you know, web hosts don't know that. They don't – unless you're a really huge client and bring in a lot of money for them, they're not going to want to go through the trouble, unless they're a really good one. So that's the stuff of things you could do to protect your own information. So I do recommend our surveillance self-defense guide. Now, what can you do to protect your reader's information? Can I assume, does everyone here have an online presence? So you have an online presence, you have online readers, so you're actually collecting information about your readers, whether you're intending to or not. What can you do about their readers, what, readers' information. One of the things you should do as soon as you possibly can is to make sure that your website is HTTPS by default. So not HTTP, but HTTPS, the secure version, by default. That's the encrypted version. And you should do that as soon as you possibly can. And that will be a significant protection for your readers' privacy rights. You should retain as little information as possible. You should actually look at your systems and actually be conscious of what type of information you're actually retaining and actually make a decision, hey, we don't need that. We don't need to automatically retain. We actually want to give people the ability to use our website and to read the news on our website to even comment on our articles without knowing anything about them, right? So that's something you can do. You know, don't disclose anonymous commentators unless you have a specific court order. Again, so the same, you give them the same protections you would give your source. Oh, another thing. That you another thing, just another tool in terms of for my last one I forgot to mention is that if you do want to set up a way to receive confidential to receive leaked information and whistleblower type information, does anyone here have SecureDrop? Does anyone here use SecureDrop? Everyone ever heard of it? Does anyone have it? So, so SecureDrop is a tool that's being developed by the Freedom of the Press Foundation. It's really sort of their main mission right now, which allows you to receive information and you have without disclosing who you're getting. It allows someone to give you information 
confidentially. So you don't even know who they are. So, you can, so whistleblowers can give you information. You won't know who they are. So even if you are compelled to turn over the information, you won't have information to turn over. And everyone uh, should, can get SecureDrop. They can be customized to your own site so that the secure, you'll have a specific SecureDrop uh, secure URL that's specific to your publication. I believe they have funding that allows people to have this, uh, that subsidizes publications being able to, to use that. So let me, I give a big plug to SecureDrop. You should all do that. What's the thing I'm going to say that's unpopular? The, I read something the other day that said that the average web session of viewing a page on the internet, that 64 different entities collect information about the viewer during just the average page view. The vast, if not all, of those 64 different entities are advertisers. Now, I know I want you all to exist, and I want you all to be at this conference next year, right? So I know you can't, I know that saying don't have advertising on your sites is not going to go over well. But at least understand how the tremendous amount of tracking that, go, that advertisers do through, through the internet, and, new, and they don't treat new sites any differently than they do anything else. So anyway, I mean, it's very easy for me to say, well, you know, avoid advertising that tracks users in a bad way. But I know that's, that's really, that's almost impossible for you to do because the reason they want to advertise on the web is not because they're really trying to sell widget X from your web page. It's because they want to know behavioral information about the people who, about your readers. But think about things you can do. What are there things you can do? Can, are there some articles where maybe it's really important that there's no tracking, Right. Are there, you know, is there some way that you can make your readers aware? Can, is there way, are there ways technologically that you can minimize this? Again, it's a real challenge, but be aware that a lot of tracking that you buy, your websites do facilitate a lot. For better or for worse, they facilitate a lot of tracking. AN might want to, and I don't, and you guys are involved, or are you involved? In, there's, a, there's a lot of do not, Kevin, are you guys involved in do not track legislation in the FTC? So... So one of the things you might want to ask and to get involved in is to be active in Do Not Track, uh, which is really trying to put some governmental regulatory force saying it still allows advertisers to make a lot of money, but it tries to really cut down some of the, real, of the most egregious practices. So I want to stop there because I, I really am interested in taking questions or just having a further conversation about anything um, I talked about. So yes, Dennis. <clears throat> Um, there are so, now. Oh, sorry. Yes, uh, the question is: Is there any history of phone companies pushing back against some of these practices? The only company that has come forward and said we push back uh, is Credo Mobile. Now that doesn't mean nobody else is doing it, but I think a lot of companies do this. Their, if they're going to make any public statement, it's going to be because they're trying to appeal to their consumers. So maybe no other company has has decided that their consumers, that would appeal to their consumers. Um, you know, Credo, appeal, that's who they're going. That's, that's, you know, they say that they're the phone company that protects your, yours and everybody's civil rights and civil liberties. So, so they say that they have. Again, they're not really allowed to talk about specific instances of doing it, but they, at least in their privacy policies, say that they will do everything they can to oppose such, such requests. So. Yes, I can't see your name tag. But. Yeah, the question was, what about state and local authorities? 
So, well, first of all, we we don't we're not aware of state and local authorities doing the type of sort of mass surveillance, and they probably don't have the resources to do it because it's really expensive and requires a ton of technological expertise, um, and again, re- requires huge places to store information. What we don't know is to what extent state and local authorities have access to the federal databases. There are a lot of programs where the FBI in particular can work in tandem with local law enforcement, these joint terrorism task forces. And we're sort of assuming that the state, the local governments, when they're working in tandem with the FBI, will then have access to all this information because they seem to have access to all the other FBI information. And again, these joint terrorism task forces, I don't know if anybody else has ever done reporting about a JTTF, but again, this is not just international you know, World Trade Center 9-11 terrorism. This is anarchist groups are on these lists, um, uh, environmental groups, you know, things, anything that's considered to be especially scary. We, we have a FOIA request about that. Um, so um, anyway, so that – so wait, I know that um, – you know, but, but you know, local – you know, local law enforcement does do a lot of surveillance. What we're really seeing them do things with now are more on the level of, of what we call street-level surveillance. With uh, uh, deploy, they're actually uh, they're getting actually grants from Homeland Security to develop a lot of tools. Um, uh, they're getting a lot of money to deploy automated automated license plate readers, which are actually not a bad news gathering tool either. But it's sort of scary when the government has them. This is basically they you know, can they can identify driving patterns. Um, we uh, we actually did a, a California Public Records Act request about Alameda County's use of uh, automated license plate readers, and were they able to map out like. Well, first of all, they were only using them in communities they thought were at-risk communities, which tend are high-crime communities, which actually tended to be communities of lower economic resources as well, um, because when you patrol places you think are high-crime, you tend to detect crime there, and when you're not patrolling other places, you tend not to see crime. Um, anyway, and so we know there's lots of surveillance like that. There's, uh, there's, DHS is also encouraging local law enforcement agencies to, to buy these things called stingrays, Everyone dealt with sting, any reporting on stingrays. I really encourage you all to we go back and do a, pu- a public records request to your local sheriff's office or police department for, to see if they got a DHS grant for stingrays. Stingrays essentially fake being a cell phone tower. And so they, all cell phone traffic gets routed to them instead of to the cell phone tower. The, what they'll tell you is, well, they don't work that way. And it's true, they don't necessarily work that way, but they can be easily modified to work that way, and there's really no other good use for them. So, um, so, sting, so there's lots of tools we're seeing, uh, we're seeing like that. Is that. Did I answer your question? Okay. It's really messy. Um, it's a really, really tough legal question. And and a really really tough policy question as well. You know, I mean, I've I, again I say I think there are, in some ways the license plate reader is a great news gathering thing. If you're you're trying to find out, you know, if you're trailing a public official and want to know where that person's going and where she's parking or whatever, I mean, it's a great tool to have. And the easy thing to do is to say, well, private there's private uses are okay. Government uses are bad. The only problem is that once it's a private use, that just becomes a, a bank of information for the government to use, and we can't have a law where only private uses that we like are good, right? And so there is some, I think there's some urge to say, well, maybe we need to restrict private uses in some way. Or there's been legislation in Utah and Utah, right? 
Here, we're here. Look at that. Uh, Utah and one other state. What's the... Yeah, there, I think someone from... Was it Arkansas? Do you guys have one? I, I think it might be Arkansas. There was legislation where um, to actually regulate the use of ALPRs, automated license plate readers, for commercial purposes. So what a lot of companies do now are they, they basically gather all this data about where, where tra- trail, you know, trace cars all over the place, know where every car is at any time. And then they sell that information that's really valuable to advertisers. Uh, insurance companies love that information. They want to know where cars are going. And you know, people trying to rec- – what the police say is we're just trying to recover stolen cars. So but it's, 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 a really difficult, it's a really difficult question. Well, is that a good line? Can we, can we say, well, no commercial uses? And, and I don't know – I don't have a personal answer to that. I think drones, news gathering by drones is the same. I mean, drones, I think, bring up a lot of the same questions. Well, a great news gathering tool, right? A great tool for photojournalism that does not have to put our photographers within harm's way, right? Or, or don't have to sort of worry about trespass and things like that. You know, but drone use by the government is really scary. And what about drone use by the people who are just collecting and then selling it to the government? You know, and so it's, I think it's really, really hard places to draw, to draw lines. Yes. The question is, given the OPM hack, um, which I think 19, 2000, from 2000 onward, anyone who, who had a government uh, uh, clearance review, their intimate personal information was now accessible to whoever. We, we keep on saying it's the Chinese, so the Chinese deny it. You should, does, wouldn't that the government say, actually, it might be bad to aggregate data? And the answer is, well, yes, they might, but they won't, and they haven't. So um, they like data. They like information. They really I, – I, I don't doubt this. I think the belief that if we have all the information we can, we can make people safe, or at least we can say we did everything we could. I mean, I think they're really motivated by that. If you talk to people who are data professionals, they'll tell you, well, that's just not the way it works, right, that there's really not a lot of value in having a lot of data but not having everything. Um, that once you exclude something, you're already you, – then, then the, the efficacy falls apart. That's what the MIT data people have been saying. So – but no, I mean I, th- you know, I think one of the things that happened post-9-11 is the government saying we, we, want, we want to be in a position, if this ever happens again, where we can say we did everything we possibly could. And so we have these tools. We've developed these tools, and we think we should be able to use them and – there you go. So, yes. Yeah, so the question was um, how do we view government – and I might be rephrasing this a little bit. How do we, how do we view government surveillance as sort of a threat uh, to privacy when there's all the sort of private commercial threats to privacy that people don't seem to – that people seem to be willingly jumping into and the Internet of Things – was one of the things that was mentioned there. And let me just say that I think they're two separate but related concerns. Um, you know, for me, the government surveillance raises a lot of different issues because I'd like – first of all, our relationship with our government is not voluntary, right? You know, we, we, we can't opt out of our relationship with, our, with the government. And, and not only is it not voluntary, but I think we, it's, we also have a different relationship with our government, right? And that relationship – and one of the things the First Amendment means is, is opposing your government and criticizing your government and being a dissident. I mean that, those, are, those are the rights the First Amendment was preserving. When the government knows everything you're doing, it 
makes it more difficult to exercise those rights, whether you call that chilling effect or whatever you want to call it. Right? So I do think our relationship with our government is a lot different. The, the approach we take at EFF is that with private entities, our main goal is to really educate consumers because that is really an opt – it's largely an opt-in system where you are choosing to take advantage of a service. You install a Nest thermostat because, hey, I was never able – to like figure out how to change my thermostat. I never feel that. I'm glad there's an algorithm now figuring out when my thermostat should go up and down. And so I'm okay with Nest, which is now part of Google, knowing when I leave my house, when I'm in my house, when I'm not in my house, when I like it hot, when I like it cold, right? Um, I'm okay with them knowing that. So what we do at EFF, we really concentrate on, on this idea of transparency where – and one of the ways that the press really helps in reporting these things is at least we can make consumers aware that when they, when they do these things that this is the information they're making accessible. And then it then becomes a rich source of information about you that the government can attain and you're really then trusting the service to really stand up for your rights. So uh, that's the approach we take. We also – we develop – our technologists develop a lot of tools to help consumers. We have one called Privacy Badger, which essentially is a do-not-track tool that you install. It's a, it's a browser extension for Firefox um, that you install on Firefox that actually the, the advertisers then don't track you. Um, it blocks all tracking. Uh, so uh, the way – what the FTC has done with tracking, with advertising track, is, is essentially create an opt-out system where if you don't want it, you then have to opt out of all this advertising, it's, which is actually very difficult to do. What, if you install Privacy Badger, what it does is it, it just defaults to opt out for you. And then if a site's not working because they need to track information, you get a message that says, you know, you actually – to use this site, you actually need to allow it to track. So, so we focus on sort of consumer education and consumer tools. So, but I, I do think I, – I do like to push back a little bit against this idea that people don't care about their privacy rights because they, they share stuff on Facebook and, you know, and stuff like that. Or they use, you know, they use Google Chrome, which, you know, tracks all your browser history. So I don't, why do I care if, you know, it tracks it across all platforms. So, you know, Google hooks up your email with your Chrome browsing, with your, you know, Picasa, with pictures, you know, everything's connected. So, um, with your Nest. Uh, but I actually think people do, I think people, when they can make educated decisions, do care. You know, the Pew Center's report, um, a different one of Kevin's clients, their report on – their report actually showed that even young people actually still do care greatly about their privacy and actually still make very conscious decisions about who they share information with. Sometimes they make mistakes, but they actually do care about, about their private information. And there's, and there's all as, – as much as – there are things we all don't want to share. Even if we decide, yes, I'll share it with Nest, there's other stuff. There's, there's definitely stuff we don't want to share. So. Yeah. I'm sorry. The question was, is, the, is the, um, this uh, analytical software the government is going to give to the phone companies so that they can then do this, uh, this searching and this hop searching, is it going to be open source? Will we ever get to see it? Like, they haven't said it's not going to be open source. Um, but no, I, I, would, I would fall over wherever I'm standing if, if, that, uh, if it's not completely highly triple classified information. So I don't think we'll I don't think we'll learn. But ready your FOIA request right now. Uh, the question is: Has there been a link? Has uh, do I know of of uh, insurance companies sort of using take advantage of all this connected data in terms of rate setting? My this is not, this is going outside of my area of legal expertise. I understand that that's actually regulated in many states. Regulate 
to what what types of information insurance companies can use in rate setting. And so the answer to that question is probably going to vary from state to state. They certainly have access to the information. And I think if they're not forbidden from using it, they'll use it. And it makes sense. I mean, uh, they put as much, again, you know, actuarial, uh, actuarial tables, you know, fee, the more information you can put into them, the more accurate they're going to be. So it's, it's, it's a similar thing. There was a question. Yeah, the question is: Do we do we have any do we evaluate uh, privacy products? Um, the answer is yes and no. We try not to give product endorsements, although I can say that almost all of us use the Open Whisper system apps that I that I talked about, uh, and because that's open source software, and we tend to have trusted, and it tends to work. There was actually just the Wall Street Journal actually just did a whole article about their lead developer and stuff. For other things, we we have a report we do called Who Has Your Back. Um, which you can also find on our website, where we evaluate companies' policies and then let people decide. So we don't endorse anybody, but we give stars for people who are meeting certain benchmarks. And then, you know, and then just sort of, it's, so it's just providing, the, it's, we're not making the decision, but we're providing consumer information uh, in that way. And I think this year we evaluated 30 different providers. One of the things that really great that happened this year is that um, a week before we were about to publish, well, we were about to publish the report. We had to delay it a week because we had a call from Amazon that said, realized it was going to get a really, really, it was not going to get any stars on our Who Has Your Back report. And um, they decided, they, wanted, they asked us to wait a week because they were going to issue their very first privacy uh, report, and which I think they ended up getting two stars instead of, instead of zero. Instead of zero so. so I, I would recommend that, that uh, that resource on our website as well. My flight's later, later this afternoon, but I'm happy to hang around after this for a bit. Um, and also, if you do want to email me, in, 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 send me an encrypted email, my PGP key, my public key, um, so that I'm the only one who can open that email, is on our website. If you go to our my profile on our website, my PGP key is there. So you could cut and paste that um, into your into your encrypted email, and then I will be the only person who will able who will be able to read that email. Is that something so. you recommend to all of us? I recommend that everybody, everyone in your business, um, at least certainly anyone who communicate who is in part of the news gathering or reporting process, should have encrypted email. And PGP is certainly the, it's free and easiest one to use. And, um, and the other thing I'd mention is that the, the habit we fall, and I'm just as guilty of this as other people, is that we tend to only encrypt things that are important. But it's actually, it's a good practice to encrypt even routine things because when you only encrypt the important stuff, then the government, it just, then they'll, they'll, they've identified the stuff they really want. So when you encrypt everything, and then it's, it's harder for them to find the stuff that they're actually targeting. So. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also download episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at All Journalism. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.